0: The Bible contains 66 books, and now we have scanned our way through 65 of those 66 books. And tonight and over the next, well, tonight and next two nights, next three nights, we'll be covering the book of Revelation. But before we begin tonight, why don't we pray? Father, we thank you. Again, for your word, we thank you, Lord, for the rich treasures we find whenever we delve into the scriptures. And Lord, we're reading a book tonight that promises us that if we read it and keep it, you will certainly bless us in wonderful ways. And so, Lord, tonight, as we open this letter, as we read this book, we expect a blessing, a blessing from your gracious hands, your bountiful heart. Lord, we ask that you Work mightily in our lives, Lord, as we peer into these things, many of them yet future. Speak to us tonight and in the days ahead. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 1 begins, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, the Greek word that's translated here, revelation, is our word apocalypse. And of course, in our culture, apocalypse speaks of a cataclysmic destruction. But to the Greeks, it meant simply an unveiling or an uncovering. Imagine walking into an art gallery and seeing a sculpture covered with a canvas. And at the appropriate moment, the canvas is ripped away, revealing the masterful, the wonderful piece of art, the artist's creation. Well, this, in essence, is the book of Revelation. Jesus, you see, is alive and well. We don't see his beauty and his excellence, for he's hidden behind that heavy canvas that separates the spiritual from the tangible. And yet, in this book, John is going to rip away the veil, the canvas. And he is going to reveal to us Jesus in all his excellence and glory. The book of Revelation deals with divine judgments. It deals with political alignments. With military movements, with demonic activities, with great spiritual awakenings that occur prior to the Lord's return. It puts a spotlight on heaven's archenemy, the Antichrist. It even talks about the number of the Antichrist, the number of the beast. Six, six, six. That's just one of his tricks, tricks, tricks. But the point of revelation, and catch this up front, is not... The unleashing of judgment, the point of the book, is the unveiling of our Lord Jesus in his glory. John writes, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. Now, the Greek word translated shortly is the word tachis, from which we get our word tachometer. The phrase doesn't mean those events will unfold shortly after John's day. Rather, the events, when they begin to occur, will unfold in rapid succession. In other words, when the dam breaks, the flood is going to come quickly. God will rev up in time's events. And when he does, things will happen at an incredible pace. When these things begin to happen, watch it. It will rev up. God will pop the clutch. He'll let the prophetic tires squeal. When it all starts coming down, watch and marvel how quickly it takes place. George Wald, a Nobel Prize winning scientist from Harvard, he recently said this. I think human life is threatened as never before in the history of this planet. Not just by one peril, but by many perils that are all working together and coming to a head at about the same time. This is what John is saying as well in the book of Revelation. A wide array of plagues and punishments will strike the earth, and they'll all be delivered in one shipment. John continues, He sent and signified it, Jesus did, by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God, into the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. Now notice Jesus sent and signified this message. The word signified means to give a sign or a signal. And when John received this letter, remember he was a prisoner of the state of Rome. He was a prisoner of the emperor. And to avoid censorship from the Roman guards... His book was encoded in signs and symbols. And what better way to code this book than to use the Old Testament idioms, the Old Testament signs and symbols. John is writing to a group of people who are biblically literate, who understand the sacred scriptures, and so he writes these things in the symbols of the Old Testament. The key to interpreting Revelation is to familiarize yourself with the Old Testament idioms and symbols of the 404 verses in revelation 278 contain old testament references that's almost 70 percent of the book 360 old testament references or inferences are found in the book of revelation it's been said the best commentary on the bible is always the bible itself and that is especially true when we come to the book of revelation verse 3 says "Blessed." Who is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near? Revelation is the only book in the Bible that specifically promises a blessing. Blessed are you if you read and if you hear the words of this prophecy. It promises you a blessing simply for reading it. John calls the revelation, notice, a prophecy or a foretelling of future events. When it comes to Revelation, there are generally four schools of interpretation. First, there is the preterist school. The word preter is Latin for past. And it teaches that Revelation has already been fulfilled, that the events all occurred in first century Rome. Next, there is the historical school, which teaches that Revelation is being played out even as we speak. That it supposedly charts the struggle and the growth of the church throughout the ages. A third school is called the allegorical school. It believes that this book is a metaphor for the battle between good and evil that has been unfolding throughout history. And of course, the book of Revelation then would assure that good will ultimately triumph. I want you to know, though, I reject all three of these schools of interpretation. Because they violate the most basic rule of biblical hermeneutics. The golden rule of biblical interpretation is this. You should take the Bible literally unless the text itself suggests another interpretation. In other words, when the clear sense of Scripture makes good sense, then seek no other sense. That's always the practice that I follow. That's why I hold to a fourth school of interpretation, the futurist school. Read through Revelation and you find the author recording exactly what he sees. He records actual people and actual places and actual events. And at no time since John's writing have 100 pound hailstones ever pummeled the earth. At no time since John lived on the earth have continents split apart and has a third of the earth been scorched with fire. That's why all these events are still future. They're still waiting to be fulfilled. As John puts it, the book of Revelation is a prophecy or a foretelling of future events. Verse 4 greets us. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was And who is to come. This is another way of saying God dwells outside of time. He sees the end from the beginning. God always is. God has always been. God will always be. According to verse 4, the book of Revelation is from a timeless God. From the Holy Spirit. Who is not seven different spirits, but one spirit with a sevenfold ministry. And if you reference later Isaiah 11, verse 2, it will shed light on Revelation chapter 4, 1, verse 4. And then third, it's from a faithful witness who is Jesus Christ. And notice verse 7. Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him. Even they who pierced him. Verse 7 is right out of Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. There Jesus will return to this earth, and the Jews will one day look on him whom they have pierced. Remember, Jesus came the first time to pardon, he comes the second time to punish. And he speaks to us in verse 8 he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now you know that Alpha and Omega are the first and last letters in the Greek alphabet. In essence, Jesus is saying that he is the A to Z of life. Life begins and ends with him. It originates with Jesus. It concludes and culminates with Jesus. He is our source and he is our purpose. All of life originates and culminates in our Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 9, John tells us that he received the revelation on the island called Patmos. Around 90 AD, the Roman emperor Domitian arrested John and sentenced him to death. John was taken and he was boiled in a vat of hot oil. But God miraculously delivered him from that torture, that execution, And since Domitian couldn't kill him, he banished John to this rocky island called Patmos. Patmos is a desolate, rocky place, 10 miles long by 6 miles wide. It was 15 miles off the coast of Ephesus in the Aegean Sea. Imagine a 90-year-old John going to work in the rock mines on the island of Patmos. But that's where he received this revelation. John tells us about it. He says that he was in the spirit on the Lord's day when he saw an incredible vision. First, a voice spoke. I am the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And then he saw Jesus in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet. Now, commoners in those days wore knee-length robes. Only royalty wore robes that touched their feet. And Jesus was girded about the chest with a golden band. In other words, he was wearing the uniform of a priest. He was wearing the golden breastplate of the high priest. He was clothed in robes of royalty, wearing the garments of a priest. And then in verse 14, John says, His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass. As if refined in a furnace, and his voice is the sound of many waters, he had his right hand, in his right hand, seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. Once I saw an album cover. You remember albums? Long, long time ago. Once I saw an album cover... That tried to replicate this portrait of Jesus was, the artist was very literal in his representation. The result though was grotesque. Had a sword literally coming out of Jesus' mouth and had this kind of picture of him. I thought the drawing was actually sacrilegious. Remember, Revelation was encoded in Old Testament idioms. Jesus' white hair here is not a bleach job. It's not gray hair or a sign of old age. Rather, it speaks of purity. His eyes aren't bloodshot. The fire is the searing scrutiny and the searchability of God. They penetrate through the veneer and reveal a person's heart. His brass feet don't mean that he had a lead foot. In Old Testament times, brass was a symbol of judgment. And when Jesus returns, he's going to put his foot down in judgment on this world. The voice of Jesus is like a waterfall. The roar from a tall waterfall drowns out all other sounds. And so does the voice of Jesus Christ. When Jesus speaks, his voice overcomes all other influences. When Jesus speaks, people listen. Finally, the two-edged sword that comes out of his mouth is, of course, an idiom for the word of God. He speaks God's word. John says in verse 17, And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. John was overwhelmed with this vision. All he could do before Jesus was fall on his face and worship. But that's when Jesus laid his hand on John, and he said to him, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. He's the risen Christ. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. And then in chapter 1, verse 19, he says, Write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. And here's an outline for the rest of the book of Revelation. Chapter 1 is the things which you have seen. In other words, John's vision of the risen Lord Jesus. Chapters 2 and 3 are the things which are. And, of course, John was a member of the church. And in chapters 2 and 3, he writes about the church age. And then chapters 4 through 22 are the things which will take place after this. After what? Well, after the church. When the church is raptured, then God will judge the world. Jesus will triumph over evil. And he will establish his physical kingdom on the earth. In chapter 1, verse 20, Jesus interprets an element of the vision that John gives to us. He says, the seven lampstands are seven churches. And a lampstand is, of course, a beautiful idiom for the church. We should be a lamp, a light into this dark world. We need to be a lampstand reflecting the truth and the love of Jesus Christ. Earlier in chapter 1, verse 7, Jesus had told John to send his record of the revelation to the seven churches of Asia. And he lists those seven churches. To Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. These were actual churches existing at the time Uh, in the continent of Asia. But it's interesting, why did he mention these seven churches? Of course, there were hundreds of churches in John's day. There were many more churches in Asia. Why did he choose just seven churches? And why these seven? And why did he list them in this order? There are, at last count, 340,000 Christian churches in the United States consisting of about 300 different denominations. And each of these denominations, if not each church itself, has a different flavor, a different focus, a little different style. Christianity in America seems extremely diverse, which reminds me, how many Southern Baptists does it take to change a light bulb? (laughs) Well, only one, but 15,738,283 have to vote on it first. How many Roman Catholics does it take to change a light bulb? Nine, one to change it, and eight to raffle off the old one. (laughs) How many Charismatics does it take to change a light bulb? Three, one to cast it out, and two to catch it if it falls. How many Presbyterians does it take to change a light bulb? Change? What's change? How many Amish does it take to change a light bulb? A light bulb? What's a light bulb? How many Church of Christ does it take to change a light bulb? Only one, but if anyone else tries to do it, the light won't come on. How many Nazarenes does it take to change a light bulb? Five, one to change it, and four to serve refreshments. How many Episcopalians does it take to change a light bulb? Three, one to do it, one to bless the element, and one to say how much they like the old one. How many Methodists does it take to change a light bulb? They don't know, but there's a committee studying the issue. And how many Calvary guys does it take to change a light bulb? One, but he's never on time. (laughs) You know, we assume that churches come in thousands of varieties, but not so. There are really only seven types of churches, and really only seven types of church members. Jesus wrote to seven churches, and each of those churches represents an attitude that exists among believers today. Each one of us is a member of one of these seven churches, but there's even more to this list. In the Bible, the number seven speaks of completion. And I also believe that God, that John chose, and of course God chose to reveal to John, these seven churches as a representative sample of the complete church, both at that time, the churches that would unfold throughout the ages, and even attitudes within the church that exist today. In fact, you can trace church history by looking at each of these churches in the order of their mention here in this list. They were actual churches, but they also, in my mind, represent church ages. It's interesting, Amos chapter 3, verse 7 tells us, Surely the Lord God does nothing unless He reveals His secret to His servants, the prophets. In the Old Testament, God recorded history from creation to the time of Christ. In Acts, he records the first 30 years of church history. But what about the 1900 years since? What about the Christian era? It says here that surely God does nothing except He reveals it to His servants, the prophets. Has God not commented on the last 1900 years of history? Yes, I believe He has. But I believe He critiqued it in advance here in these seven letters To the seven churches. Ephesus describes the apostolic church or the early church, the first church. And in chapter 2 verse 2, Jesus commends this church. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. Now here's a church that was doing a lot of things right. They had it together outwardly for sure. They were busy serving the Lord, busy sacrificing for the Lord, remaining steadfast in the Lord, sniffing out false doctrine contrary to the Lord. But Jesus finds one fatal fault in this church. He says in verse 4, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Here was a church that was going through the motions but without the emotion, without the devotion. Here was a church with piety, but with no passion for God. And the cure Jesus prescribes is threefold. Notice in verse 5, he says, Remember therefore where you have fallen, repent, and do the first works. Notice he gives us three R's. You might want to write these down. Three R's. If you've left your first love, you can go back. You can recover it, but it requires three things. Three R's. First, recall. Second, repent. And third, repeat. Recall your conversion. Remember in your mind that initial love you had for God. That excitement of seeing your sins forgiven. Recall the hunger you had for God and for the things of God. That fresh taste of the Holy Spirit in your heart. You couldn't get enough of God's love. You studied diligently His truth. Recall those first flickers of life, that flame that burned in your heart. Recall your conversion and the first love you had for God. But then repent. Hey, repent of getting sidetracked. Lord, forgive me for growing cold. Forgive me for taking these incredible blessings for granted. Lord, forgive me For not appreciating and enjoying and experiencing these things as I did in the beginning. Repent. And then thirdly, repeat. Repeat the things you did in the beginning to cultivate that first love. You remember what it was like to just to set aside hours to get into the Word of God, to spend time praying, how you spent bulks of time just being with the Lord Remember how you used to serve God in tangible ways? You were at the church every time the doors were open. You were volunteering for whatever you could do. Remember how you were bold in your faith? You would witness to a stranger at a drop of a hat. Remember the generous offerings that you gave? You you, you know, you couldn't afford it, but you gave it anyway. Your love was extravagant. He says, repeat those things. Follow your heart, not just your head. Love the Lord extravagantly. It's been said, it's easier to act yourself into a feeling than to feel yourself into an action. Do the first works. Repeat those things you did in the beginning and you'll regain your first love. The church of Smyrna was the martyred church of the second and third centuries. The church of the catacombs, if you've ever been to Rome. The church in Smyrna endured persecution. The bishop of Smyrna, in fact, a man by the name of Polycarp, was burned at the stake for his faith in Jesus. And between the years of 65 and 312 A.D., the Roman emperors martyred five million believers in Jesus Christ, fed them to the lions, burned them at the stake. In verse 9, Jesus says to this church, I know your works, tribulation And poverty, but notice he adds, but you are rich. On earth, Smyrna lived in poverty. Their property, their possessions had been confiscated, but in God's eyes, her faithfulness made her rich. In verse 10, Jesus says to all persecuted saints of all times, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. There is a great reward for those who suffer for Jesus' sake. Historically speaking, Pergamus was the church that merged with paganism. In 312 A.D., a significant event took place. The emperor Constantine converted to Christianity. And to spread his new faith, he tried to Christianize many of the pagan symbols and practices and traditions of ancient Rome. He tried to reinterpret the pagan practices with Christian meaning. And in the end, he did far more harm than good. Instead of spreading the faith, he led to a pollution of it. This is why we pay very little credence today to much of church tradition. Because it's wrong. Because there are a lot of traditions that are unbiblical, Our model is not church tradition. Our model for the church is the book of Acts. We go back to the book. We go back to the early church, not to the church of tradition. Many traditions that have developed within the church are just not biblical. In verse 13, Jesus refers to the city of Pergamos as the seat of Satan's throne. These believers lived near Satan's headquarters Yet they didn't deny their faith. Give them credit for that. They did, though, make serious compromises. In verse 15, Jesus says, Thus, you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. You see, the church of Pergamos was the first church to foster a distinction between the preacher in the pulpit and the person in the pew. The word Nicolaitan is from two Greek words, Nikon, Nikon, which means to conquer, and Laos, which means the people. And the Nicolaitans were religious leaders who ruled over the people and domineered and manipulated the people. You see, prior to the church in Pergamos, to this period of church history, the church consisted of servant leaders. Pastors were the servants of the flock. But after Constantine, a professional clergy developed that began to take advantage of the people. The church of Thyatira was the church of the Middle Ages. Thyatira was the result, the culmination of Pergamos' compromise. In verse 19, Jesus mentions her works, love, service, faith, and your patience. But he goes on to rebuke her because she allowed that woman Jezebel to teach and seduce. And of course, the name Jezebel is synonymous in the Old Testament with idolatry. Jezebel was the first to bring Baal worship into Israel. The church at Thyatira went to bed with the world and abandoned her devotion to the Lord. She was a benevolent church, but she was also an idolatrous church. And this is what happened to the church during the Middle Ages. Years of compromise took its toll. The Virgin Mary went from being a noble example to being called the mother of God. All kinds of idolatrous notions developed around Mary. Even today, there are Roman Catholics that consider Mary to be a co-redeemer with Jesus Christ. This is nothing short of heresy, nothing short of idolatry. The word Thyatira, interestingly enough, means continual sacrifice, which speaks, too, of the heretical notion Roman Catholics have toward the communion elements. That they have turned the bread and the wine into the literal body and blood of Jesus and thus sacrifice him every Sunday, a continual sacrifice. Whereas the scriptures tell us that Jesus need be sacrificed but once, once for all, for the remission of our sin. And notice what Jesus says he'll do with the idolaters there in Thyatira. in chapter two, verse twenty-two. He says, I will cast her into a sickbed. And those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. Notice the implication is, is that the faithful church will be spared great tribulation. The warning, though, to this church, to this compromising and idolatrous church, that unless they repent, they'll be thrown into great tribulation. And of course, this means, too, that an element of this church will survive to the last days so that they will be thrown into great tribulation. The word Sardis means escaping ones. And this is the church that's often identified with the reformers that came out of Thyatira and tried to return to biblical authority. Protestant means protester. And the Protestants protested against the idolatry that they saw taking place in the Catholic Church. The cry of the Reformation, then and now, is faith alone, grace alone, Scripture alone. The church of Sardis represents mainline Protestantism. And in chapter 3, verse 1, Jesus says, I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. You see, the Reformation restored biblical authority to the church, but it also created a dead orthodoxy. You see, the reformers were men empowered by the Holy Spirit. In their day, they were alive to God. The Spirit of God was upon them. They flowed in the unction, in the movement of the Holy Spirit. But now the churches that bear their name are for the most part spiritually dead. They carry the name, but they lack the power. In other words, being a Lutheran doesn't guarantee you the devotion and the fire and the passion of a Luther. When a church holds true tradition, it's often because it's lost its fire. And Jesus' word to Sardis is, Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain. The next church is the Church of Philadelphia. And of course, the word Philadelphia means brotherly love. And this church did have a love for its fellow man and certainly a love for God. Philadelphia represents the evangelical church of the last two centuries. God opened a door for this church that no one could shut. And though the church had little strength, it used what strength it had and it kept God's word and it went through that open door. This was a church with opportunistic faith. And I believe God is always opening doors for his church. God is opening doors for our church. This past week, Pastor James went down to Haiti to try to find some open doors for our Mission efforts. Now the only question for us is, are we willing to go through those open doors? You say, but we have little strength. Well, so did the church at Philadelphia. But it used the strength that it had to go through those doors and to count for Jesus Christ. God is always opening doors. The question for us is, are we willing to enter them? The seventh church and the last church here in this list is that of Laodicea. A church that sadly looks a lot like our modern church today. Neither spiritually frozen nor on fire. This is a church that's room temperature. Isn't that sad? The church of Laodicea takes her cues from the world. And as a result, according to chapter 3, verse 16, this is the church that like a warm drink on a hot day, the Lord can't even keep her In her his mouth, he just can't stomach her and he spews her out of his mouth. You see, the problem with the church of Laodicea is that she had lost all objectivity. She no longer saw herself as she really was. She says, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. But the Lord says of her, you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. She had lost all objectivity. She had forgotten how God sees her. Verse 20 provides a sad picture. God stands outside the door of this church and he knocks. Isn't that sad? The church of Laodicea has locked God out of his own church. But here's the Lord's wonderful promise. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. If you've locked Jesus out of your heart and you want him back, all it takes is for you to open the door. He stands at your door tonight and he knocks and he's asking you to open that door. And if you do, he'll come into you and fellowship with you and you can fellowship with him. You see, it's time that we rose above the spiritual complacency, the lukewarmness of our day and become overcomers like God desires for us to be. A hey, beginning in our hearts today, why don't we give the church back to Jesus? Chapter 4 begins, After these things. But what things? Well, for the last two chapters, John has been discussing the things of the church. And I believe what John sees here, from here on, in the book of Revelation, are things that take place after the church age. Which leads to another question. What then happens to the church? Well, John is a member of the church, is he not? And look what happens to him here. He says, I look and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me saying, Come up here and I will show you things which must take place after this. A door to heaven opens. And John is invited to come up into heaven. Note, John is in heaven. A member of the church is in heaven when he sees the events of the great tribulation begin to unfold as described in chapter 6 through chapters 19. This is just another reason why I'm convinced that God will rapture His church prior to the venting of His judgment on the earth. The church will be raptured pre-tribulation understand the second coming of jesus and the rapture of the church are two different events in scripture at the rapture jesus comes in the clouds at the second coming he sets his foot on the earth at the rapture he comes as a thief in the night unexpectedly at the second coming every eye sees him At the rapture, he comes for his people. At the second coming, he comes with his people. The rapture occurs before seven years of judgment. The second coming after seven years of judgment. Hey, I'm not getting sideline passes for the great tribulation. I'm going to be sitting up in the press box. I'm going to be watching it from heaven along with John. And you will be too if you're walking faithfully with Jesus. For the rest of chapter 4, John gives us a rare glimpse of the heavenly scene. Perhaps in the past you've thought of heaven as a series of cumulus clouds. Or you've imagined the halls of heaven were hospital white. And God appears from behind the veil in sterile scrubs. Hey, discard those notions as myths because heaven is adorned in a kaleidoscope of color. In verse 3, John describes God dressed in ruby red garments that sparkle like jasper or diamonds. Lightning bolts dart from his emerald green throne. A rainbow stretches overhead, and reflections of flickering flames dance on top of a crystal sea. Colors on earth will pale when compared to the brilliance of heaven's hues. Can you imagine? In verses 6 and 7, John sees four angelic creatures hovering around God's throne. These living creatures are living witnesses to the nature of our Lord Jesus. Jesus, it's interesting, is a lion. He's compared in Scripture to a lion or a king. These one of the living creatures there looks like a lion. Jesus is a calf. And of course, a calf was a beast of burden or a servant. Jesus, too, is the ultimate servant. Jesus is a man or an intercessor, one who understands us. And Jesus is like a flying eagle. He is sovereign over all things. It's interesting that John makes a heavenly sighting that no one else in the Old Testament saw. On occasion, the prophets of Israel were also given glimpses of the heavenly scene. But it's interesting that not one of the Old Testament prophets saw these mysterious 24 elders mentioned in verse 4. Only John saw the 24 elders. And that's why I think these elders probably represent the church, a people group that was non-existent in Old Testament times. It could have taken a New Testament witness to see these New Testament characters. One thing, though, is sure. All the parties in heaven have a single like-minded preoccupation. Heaven's priority is the worship of God. Everyone in heaven is busy worshiping God. Everyone chimes in with the living creatures who do not rest day or night saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Guys, when you learn how to worship God, you are preparing yourself for heaven. Throughout the New Testament, we're rewarded for our labors on earth with various crowns in heaven. But there is a special reason for those crowns. Notice what the elders do with their crowns. Verse 10, they cast their crowns before the throne saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Our crowns are given to us so that we'll have gifts that we can give to God. Trust me, the wonders of heaven, they will so swell your heart. They will so overcome your imagination. You'll be so blown away with the love of God that you'll be glad to have something that you in turn can give back to God for all that he's given to you. It will be an awkward moment, an embarrassing moment, if at the point of your deepest gratitude, you have nothing with which to show your thanks to God. We will take our crowns and we will lay them before the master when we see him face to face. In Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, John tells us, And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll, written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Now, in ancient times, deeds were written on double-sided scrolls. On the outside of the scroll was a legal description of the property. On the inside of the scroll were the covenants and the terms for taking possession of that property. The scroll was bound with seven waxed seals in a real estate transaction. After the price was paid, the seals were then broken. The property now belonged to a new owner. And the breaking of the seals revealed the steps that the owner would take in order to secure possession of that piece of property. Now keep that in mind because it sets the stage for the rest of this book. I believe that the scroll that John sees in God's hand is actually the title deed to planet earth. Remember, after God created the earth, he gave dominion over the earth to mankind. But man lost the deed to Satan. And today, Satan is having his run, his fill with this planet. Hey, the mess that the world is in today is not God's fault. Blame it on satanic management. Under God's law, it was the right, though, of a family member to buy back an ancestral tract of land if he could pay the redemption price. The family, though, had until the seventh year to muster the payment or the property would fall permanently to the usurper. This is why in verse 4, John's worry turns to weeping. For he sees that no one in heaven or on earth is worthy to reclaim the title deed to planet earth. And thus he fears that earth will fall permanently into the hands of Satan. He's worried. He's weeping. But that's when one of the elders point him to the lion of the tribe of Judah. For he has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose the seven seals. You see, Jesus is the lion, and he alone is worthy to take back the earth. Jesus, in fact, joined the human family. He became a part of us in order to earn the right to redeem what we had lost. And the price for this planet was paid on the cross of Jesus Christ. If Jesus had not bankrolled the scroll, the earth would have been lost forever. In verse 6 of chapter 5, John says, I looked... And behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain. Now John turned to see a lion. Jesus was identified as the lion of the tribe of Judah. But when he looked, he saw a lamb as though it had been slain. He saw what he he. Described as a butchered lamb. Remember, after the resurrection of Jesus, our Lord still bore in his resurrected body the scars of his crucifixion. He bore them in his hands, he bore them in his feet. I personally believe he also bore them in his brow from the crown of thorns, he bore them in his side. I believe he even bore those same scars in his face, and that's why perhaps Mary was unable to recognize him in the beginning. You remember Jesus invited Thomas to touch those scars. Here's a provocative thought. I believe that Jesus still bears those scars. I believe that when we get to heaven, we're going to see those scars. John looked to see a lion but instead he saw a slaughtered lamb. Guys, understand, the only man-made thing in heaven are the scars that Jesus bears in his body. And those scars will serve as eternal reminders of what you and of what I cost our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. When we get to heaven, when we see those scars, it will erase from our minds forever any doubt of his love for us. John also saw the lamb having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Horns throughout scripture are symbols of strength. Eyes are symbols of knowledge. Seven is the number of completion. The picture John paints is that this slaughtered lamb has the attributes of omnipotence and omniscience. It's a paradox here. An all-powerful lamb? An all-knowing lamb? In fact, the Greek word translated lamb in verse 6 means literally little lamb. What an oxymoron. An omnipotent little lamb. Jesus looks like a lamb. But trust me, he acts like a lion. And since the cross, Jesus now owns the earth. Hey, he has paid the price. The problem, though, is that Satan doesn't give up what he's possessed for centuries without a fight. He's holding on. But John sees the day when Jesus will open the scroll, burst the seals, set forth in the steps required to claim the possession as his own. Jesus will enforce his claim on planet Earth. He will break the seven seals on the deed and incredible plagues will rock the planet as a consequence. It will be Jesus' way of evicting Satan and his cronies. And the next 14 chapters in the book of Revelation describe the consequence of Jesus breaking these seals, enforcing His deed on planet earth and taking back possession of what now belongs to Him. He has paid the price. And notice in verse 9, when Jesus takes the scroll, heaven erupts in praise. And they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God. And we shall reign on the earth. This is not Israel singing. This is the church This is the group that has been redeemed out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. That can only be the church. And the church is praising and singing, worthy is the Lamb. And in chapter 5, verse 13, all creatures in heaven and on earth cry out, blessing and honor and glory and power be to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. For centuries, heaven has been watching. The godly on earth have been waiting. Waiting for what? Waiting for wickedness to be judged. Waiting for righteousness to be rewarded. Waiting for God to be glorified on this earth. John says that day is going to come. And he describes how it unfolds in these next 14 chapters. The Lamb will return. And he will take possession of what belongs to him. The seals will be broken and judgments will be poured out. Righteousness will be rewarded. Wickedness will be punished. And God will be glorified. And now we're ready for Revelation chapter 6. The hammer is about to fall. Stay tuned same time, same channel next week, as we get into Revelation chapter six through nineteen. let 's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this exciting book. Lord, if it, it says many things to us, but one thing it certainly says is that we're on the winning team. That we will win in the end and we will owe it all to the Lamb. Worthy is this Lamb who was slain. Worthy is the Lion of the tribe of Judah who will prevail. Who is worthy to take the scroll and to open the seals and to take possession of what we lost. Oh, thank you, Lord Jesus. That it all didn't go over to Satan forever. But that you intervened. That you became a part of our family to buy back what we lost. We praise you, Lord. And we can't wait to see you. And tell you that face to face. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Help us be a church like Philadelphia. Zealous to enter the open doors. Help us, Lord, to be faithful like Like Smyrna, even in the face of persecution. And help us, Lord, to never leave our first love. But Help us, Lord, to love you with passion, with purpose, with emotion. Help us, Lord, to repeat those first things we did that cultivated that fire. Lord, help us to cultivate and kindle that fire in our hearts tonight. Come, Holy Spirit, fill us, Lord, with your Spirit. Burn your love and passion in our hearts. Energize us tonight, Lord, to live faithfully for you this week. To be a faithful last day's witness. We love you, Lord. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.